Welcome back once again to the Kyle Style Podcast. Hopefully you're a returning listener and you've found that the Kyle Style Podcast just infuses your mind with all kinds of mimetic concepts and just it invades your your mind and your spinal column down into your body and you can't resist the pull to say, damn, Kyle's right and I want to listen to that more. And you feel compelled to act on what I'm telling you. So in that case, now that my master plan to take over the world is in full swing, you will now go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Kyle style design. You're not sure why, but you feel compelled to do so. And you will then purchase some of my original artwork. And then you will have it in your life and other people will be jealous and you will feel great great adulation as a result of this you will also realize that you are perpetuating the kyle style podcast as a mimetic virus which will continue to spread uh until there is no one else in the world left uninfected this is your task okay now awake So on this episode of the Kyle Style Podcast, I wanted to talk about a book that I read many years ago. I think it was I think it was a sign from an English class, if I remember right. But it uh had a lot of I guess I'd say meaning, right? I mean <laughs> it had a lot of meaning. Uh it's by a uh, noted uh I think he's Austrian. God damn it. Yeah, Austrian. Uh a psychotherapist who uh, survived the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps in uh, during World War II, during the Holocaust, and um, survived to tell the tale of the difference between those who... I'm going to say there were, there were those who were just immediately gassed, and there were those who were immediately killed, and there were those who, you know, had some misfortune befall them, those who maybe tried to escape and didn't uh, make it, and then there were those who, of course, like, committed suicide. He stuck, the, he stayed the course, he stuck it out with the other survivors who decided to just wait it out. They thought, I can survive this, right? Some of them that didn't take an alternative route, right? Um, they, ga- they gave up, and they succumbed to the misery and the hunger and the disease and the terror. And the Nazis made a mistake in this regard because they locked up a psychotherapist <laughs> in one of their camps who was able to... Um, to watch and monitor his fellow inmates from a, a sort of detached position as a scientist to gauge how different people with different attitudes and beliefs and mindsets were able to see their way through the the barbed wire and the searchlights and the misery. And... He survived and was able to write a book. This book is called Man's Search for Meaning. So I'm going to 
do some excerpts and some readings from Man's Search for Meaning. And I'm going to, you know, uh, sort of do some com- some Kyle-style commentary. And aside from, like, so- some of the other episodes, of course, of this show, I- I'm just being kind of silly. I'm talking about something, and I'm using a lot of profanity and everything. But I mean this episode in complete earnestness. Earnestness? Earnestness? Yeah. And I hope that it means something to you as it meant something to me when I first read it. And you'll hopefully gain something of value for your own life from it. So we got quite a, quite a bit of, uh, of stuff to get through. I, I tried to trim the excerpts down. You know, I made some excerpts and then I cut them down because I was like, oh man, this is getting really, really long. And I'm not trying to do a five-part thing about this. I think it's going to be two parts if things go well. So, settle in, and uh, here we go. Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. This book does not claim to be an account of facts and events, but of personal experiences. Experiences which millions of prisoners have suffered time and again. It is the inside story of a concentration camp told by one of its survivors. This tale is not concerned with the great horrors which have been already been described often enough, though less often believed, but with the multitude of small torments. In other words, it will try to answer this question. How was everyday life in a concentration camp reflected in the mind of the average prisoner? When one examines the vast amount of material which has been amassed as a result of many prisoners' observations and experiences, three phases of the inmate's mental reactions to camp life become apparent. The period following his admission, the period when he is well entrenched in camp routine, and the period following his release and liberation. The symptom that characterizes the first phase is shock. Under certain conditions, shock may even precede the prisoner's formal admission to the camp. I shall give, as an example, the circumstances of my own admission. So he goes on to describe, so so he's already laying out, right, like a sort of uh, psychotherapy approach to this, uh, the mindset of the prisoners, right? But he goes on to describe his entrance into Auschwitz. Um, you know, you've seen it in, uh, you know, Schindler's List or most, you know, Holocaust fiction or, or Holocaust literature, rather, has um, this imagery, the smokestacks, the trains, there's searchlights, the barbed wire and dogs and the Nazis with their uh, Hugo Boss uniforms and they uh, do the selection, right? They herd it out of the trains and they, you know, the guy, the guard, you know, points left, right, left, right. You go to the left, I, I think it was. You, you go to the left, you go to the gas chamber. You go to the right, you go to uh, a shower, right? You go to a real shower. He goes on to say, In psychiatry, there is a certain condition known as delusion of reprieve. The condemned man, immediately before his execution, gets the illusion that he might be reprieved at the very last minute. We, too, clung to shreds of hope and believed to the last moment that it would not be so bad. So after he passes the first inspection, um, the left-right, they arrive at the shower room. They remove all of their belongings, and here... um, uh, Victor Frankel, he he loses an unfinished uh, manuscript on psychotherapy that he had been working on. 
and this is his most prized possession. You know, it's this thing that he'd been working on, and it was a symbol of his intelligence and his profession and his ambitions for, you know, doing doing creative work in the world. And uh, he loses this uh, manuscript. And this will become important later on, so I mention it. So, next we were herded into another room to be shaved. Not only our heads were shorn, but not a hair was left on our entire bodies. Then on to the showers, where we lined up again. We hardly recognized each other, but with great relief some people noted that real water dripped from the sprays. While we were waiting for the shower, our nakedness was brought home to us. We really had nothing now except our bare bodies, even minus hair. All we possessed, literally, was our naked existence. What else remained for us as a material link with our former lives? For me, there were my glasses and my belt. The latter I had to exchange later on for a piece of bread. So they're literally, you know, left with nothing, right? Thus the illusions some of us still held were destroyed one by one, and then, quite unexpectedly, most of us were overcome by a grim sense of humor. We knew that we had nothing to lose except for our ridiculously naked lives. When the showers started to run, we all tried very hard to make fun, both about ourselves and about each other. After all, real water did flow from the sprays. So... They're, they're, you know, a, a bit of a reprieve, right? A slight reprieve. They're, they're not getting gassed. That's good. Um, and they are all kind of equal in the situation. They've all been treated the same way. They're all been, they've all been shaved. They're all as basically as humiliated as, uh, you know, an individual person could really be at this particular juncture. And they, they're at least getting, I hope it was a hot shower, you know, hopefully it was a you know, hot shower and they were all getting clean probably for the first time in days. So in some sense, say, this isn't, this isn't as bad as it otherwise could be. Well, let's continue. After their, uh, their cleanup and their shower, they're, uh, you know, shown to their, their barracks, their, their, uh, shed. 1,500 captives were cooped up in a shed built to accommodate probably 200 at the most. We were cold and hungry, and there was not enough room for everyone to squat on the bare ground, let alone to lie down. One five-ounce piece of bread was our only food in four days. Yet I heard the senior prisoners in charge of the shed bargain with one member of the receiving party about a tie pin made of platinum and diamonds. Most of the profits would eventually be traded for liquor, schnapps. I do not remember any more just how many thousands of marks were needed to purchase the quantity of schnapps required for a gay evening, but I do know that those long-term prisoners needed schnapps. Under such conditions, who could blame them for trying to dope themselves? There was another group of prisoners who got liquor supplied in almost unlimited quantities by the SS. These were the men who were employed in the gas chambers and the crematoriums and who knew very well that one day they would be relieved by a new shift of men, and that they would have to leave their enforced role of executioner and become victims themselves. And this is something I've read about in other, uh, in other Holocaust uh, fiction or in Holocaust history, uh, is that there were, you know, the SS, oftentimes the guards of these camps were heavily, heavily alcoholic because uh, of just all the stuff they were dealing with on a regular basis, um, the negativity of that environment. But they also did bribe, you know, the prisoners and the inmates who did the really severe jobs with 
more alcohol, right, um, to help uh, move things along. Otherwise, they didn't last as long. They had to. They couldn't face the reality of what they were doing. So, uh, so th- these extreme circumstances um, brought a lot of debate and discussion. So, uh, Frankel continues. The medical men among us learned first of all, textbooks tell lies. Somewhere it is said that man cannot exist without sleep for more than a stated number of hours. Quite wrong. I had been convinced that there were certain things I just could not do. I could not sleep without this, or I could not live without that or the other. The first night in Auschwitz we slept in beds which were constructed in tiers. On each tier, measuring about six and a half to eight feet, slept nine men directly on the boards. Two blankets were shared by each nine men. We could, of course, lie only on our sides, crowded and huddled against each other, which had some advantages because of the bitter cold. Though it was forbidden to take shoes up to the bunks, some people did use them secretly as pillows in spite of the fact that they were caked with mud. Otherwise, one's head had to rest on the crook of an almost dislocated arm. And yet sleep came and brought oblivion and relief from pain for a few hours. I would like to mention a few similar surprises on how much we could endure. We were unable to clean our teeth, and yet, in spite of that and a severe vitamin deficiency, we had healthier gums than ever before. We had to wear the same shirts for half a year until they had lost all appearance of being shirts. For days we were unable to wash, even partially, because of frozen water pipes, and yet the sores and abrasions on hands which were dirty from work in the soil did not separate, that is, unless there was frostbite. Or, for instance, a light sleeper who used to be disturbed by the slightest noise in the next room now found himself lying pressed against a comrade who snored loudly a few inches from his ear and yet slept quite soundly through the noise. If someone now asked of us the truth of Dostoevsky's statement that flatly defines man as a being who can get used to anything, we would reply, yes, a man can get used to anything, but do not ask us how. So, I mean, he's partially talking about how they kind of became like tougher, right? They sort of just, they became exhausted from all of their constant activity and everything else. And they could sleep. And imagine, imagine this, imagine just like cuddling up with a bunch of strangers that you don't know and just sleeping away. And everybody just kind of huddles together. It's warm that way. And you've got, you know, some, some guy breathing on your, on your neck. And this one is important is that they're, they're, they did separate the men and women, of course. So these are all men together. They're not sure what has happened to their female um, family members. So these are all just men together trying to pass the time and trying to survive. But uh, I'm not sure what the gums thing was either. I mean, I'm not sure why they, maybe their gums became more healthy um, because they weren't, I don't think they were allowed to like brush their teeth necessarily. Maybe they were, I don't know. Uh, But nine men sharing a blanket, uh, you know, no washing up and uh, took a toll on them. But in some ways, even he's pointing out that it has some benefits even. I was number 119104, and most of the time I was digging and laying tracks for railway lines. At one time, my job was to dig a tunnel without help for a water main under a road. This feat did not go unrewarded. Just before Christmas 1944, I was presented with a gift of so-called premium coupons. These were issued by the construction firm to which we were practically sold as slaves. The firm paid the camp authorities a fixed price per day per prisoner. 
The coupons cost the firm 50 pfennigs, that's German pennies, each, and could be exchanged for six cigarettes. Often weeks later, although they sometimes lost their validity, I became the proud owner of a token worth 12 cigarettes. But more important, the cigarettes could be exchanged for 12 soups, and 12 soups were often a very real respite from starvation. The privilege of actually smoking cigarettes was reserved for the capo, who had his assured quota of weekly coupons, or possibly for a prisoner who worked as a foreman in a warehouse or workshop and received a few cigarettes in exchange for doing dangerous jobs. The only exceptions to this were those who had lost the will to live and wanted to enjoy their last days. Thus, when we saw a comrade smoking his own cigarettes, we knew he had given up faith in his strength to carry on, and once lost, the will to live seldom returned. So he sees, he's starting to see like the warning signs and uh, indications maybe that someone's kind of giving up, right? And that if you decide to smoke cigarettes instead of trading them for food, well, you've made a choice there that, you know, you, you prefer this sort of intoxication over the nourishment that you get from the soup. And this also creates this black market that goes on. People are buying and selling and trading things to try to get, you know, more food so that they don't starve. And in some sense, I imagine this was planned by the Nazis. They, they wanted this uh, kind of desperate desperate economy, this desperate black market. So he continues. The thought of suicide was entertained by nearly everyone. If only for a brief time, it was born of the hopelessness of the situation, the constant danger of death looming over us daily and hourly, and the closeness of the deaths suffered by many of the others. From personal convictions, which will be mentioned later, I made myself a firm promise on my first evening in camp that I would not run into the wire. That's um, committing suicide by running into the electrified uh, barbed wire fences around the camp. Uh, and this is another thing. Similar to his loss of his manuscript, this uh, firm promise, he calls it, to, to not run into the wire also can, plays a role later on. So he continues. The prisoner of Auschwitz in the first phase of shock did not fear death. Even the gas chambers lost their horrors for him after the first few days. After all, they spared him the act of committing suicide. So, uh, so a friend of, uh, well, so it's saying it's, it's sort of an easier way out, right, than having to take your own life, right? And there's a kind of gallows humor that uh, sort of permeates a lot of the, uh, uh, if it permeates the book itself, it kind of pops up from time to time, and I've kind of found a few selections of it here. So you can understand that these, although they're in these awful situations, this awful context, these people were able to sometimes glean humor from it, and as we get to later, that also is as important as anything else in their survival. So uh, a friend of Frankel's snuck into his hut, and was, you know, telling the newcomers some of the tricks of surviving in Auschwitz. He says, Shave daily, if at all possible, even if you have to use a piece of glass to do it, even if you have to give your last piece of bread for it, you will look younger, and the scraping will make your cheeks look ruddier. If you want to stay alive, there is only one way. Look fit for your work. If you even limp because, let us say, you have a small blister on your heel, and an SS man spots this, 
He will have you aside, and the next day you are sure to be gassed. Therefore, remember, shave, stand, and walk smartly. Then you need not be afraid of gas. All of you standing here, even if you have only been here 24 hours, you need not fear gas. Except, perhaps, you. And then he pointed to me and said, I hope you don't mind me telling you frankly. To the others he repeated, Of all of you, he is the only one who must fear the next selection. So don't worry. He basically is picking on uh, Frankel a little bit and just saying, yeah, he's definitely going to get gassed, but the rest of you are going to be fine. It's a, you know, a morale thing, right? Trying to spread a little, uh, like a little gallows humor there saying, hey, if you do what I'm telling you, you'll be okay. Don't be worried. Uh, but this poor Frankel guy, he's totally getting gassed tomorrow. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he continues. I think it was Lessing who once said, there are things which must cause you to lose your reason or you have none to lose. An abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. The reaction of a man to his admission to a concentration camp also represents an abnormal state of mind, but judged objectively, it is a normal and, as will be shown later, typical reaction to the given circumstances. These reactions, as I have described them, began to change in a few days. The prisoner passed from the first to the second phase, the phase of relative apathy, in which he achieved a kind of emotional death. So, I mean, if you think about it, you're, you're talking about putting people into a context that, and especially in this context, this specific you know, Nazi concentration camp situation, this scenario, it's different even from a criminal prison. You you can make comparisons, but a criminal prison there, you know, they understand hopefully, presumably that they committed a crime and that they're being punished for it and then they're going to be put in with other people who also committed crimes. They understand that they, you know, they did something wrong. Um, in this case with Jews and gypsies and political prisoners etc that were all kind of put into these camps, there, there was very little to say there. They weren't, you know, they hadn't done anything wrong other than be Jewish or be, you know, be gay, whatever. And uh, so their reaction to this, this nightmarish thing, they're shaving you, they're washing you, they're stealing all your stuff, they're taking your gold teeth out, they're giving you, you know, the, the striped pajamas to wear, you're crowded into all these things, you're like, this has got to be insane. Like, this is completely mad. There's no reason for this, and that's part of what allowed it all to kind of continue. But that's uh, that's uh, Holocaust commentary in general, that the insanity of it kind of drove it all. So he's basically saying that he was kind of like aware of it at the time, uh, that people were reacting to it kind of how you'd expect, considering how crazy it was. Um, and even finding humor in it, you might think that's got a little, a little dark, but they, it just was the reaction, was just, this is crazy. So he breaks down uh, some of the uh, effects or the steps, the steps of the, of the phases that he was talking about, the shock into apathy. So first of all, there was his boundless longing for his home and his family. Then there was disgust, disgust with all the ugliness which surrounded him, even in its mere external forms which is different from the, you know, the internal aspects and the insults and the pain, etc. It's just how gross everything is. Like, so there's, there's multiple levels happening there. 
Uh, but the prisoner who had passed into the second stage of his psychological reactions did not avert his eyes anymore. By then his feelings were blunted and he watched unmoved. Disgust, horror, and pity are emotions that our spectator could not really feel anymore. The sufferers, the dying, and the dead became such commonplace sights to him after a few weeks of camp life that they could not move him anymore. Apathy, the blunting of the emotions, and the feeling that one could not care anymore were the symptoms arising during the second stage of the prisoner's psychological reactions, and which eventually made him insensitive to daily and hourly beatings. By means of this insensibility, the prisoner soon surrounded himself with a very necessary protective shell. So the apathy becomes just a, a detachment, an indifference, right? You have this, uh, just a disconnect from the reality around you, and you just get so used to seeing the, hor the horrific things that you're seeing, your mind kind of, I imagine, I mean, it, it seems to be saying that, your mind kind of just separates, and you just, you become dulled to it. You, you could say you become uh, tougher, but you've also abandoned you know, your empathy and your sympathy, your your your, uh, your shock, your outrage, you've now abandoned that and you just have accepted that, hey, everything is just terrible around me, right? And those things don't affect you anymore. And like he says, that's a necessary transition that has to happen because you can't remain, you can't retain your day one terror and shock and outrage all the way through, you, you don't have that kind of emotional energy to like, uh, you know, to, to stay shocked and terrified. So it, it fades and it fades into what he's calling apathy in this case. So the hunger and the beatings, the exhaustion, the fear it begin to wear them down and, you know, the apathy sets in. So apathy. The main symptom of the second phase was a necessary mechanism of self-defense. Reality dimmed, and all efforts and all emotions were centered on one task, preserving one's own life and that of the other fellow. It was typical to hear the prisoners, while they were being herded back to camp from their work sites in the evening, sigh with relief and say, Well, another day is over. It can be readily understood that such a state of strain, coupled with the constant necessity of, concentration, of concentrating on the task of staying alive, forced the prisoner's inner life down to a primitive level. Several of my colleagues in camp who were trained in psychoanalysis often spoke of a regression in the camp inmate, a retreat to a more primitive form of mental life. His wishes and desires became obvious in his dreams. What did the prisoner dream about most frequently? Of bread, cake, cigarettes, and nice warm baths. The lack of having these simple desires satisfied led him to seek wish fulfillment in dreams. Whether these dreams did any good is another matter. The dreamer had to wake from them to the reality of camp life and to the terrible contrast between that and his dream illusions. So even though sleep maybe gave a brief, uh, you know, break and a brief respite, if you will, from the, the horrific nature of the, the camp life, you, uh, you still had to wake up from it. And that, that becomes its own kind of grueling cycle. I think everybody, you know, most adults anyway, know that, that feeling. Anyway, 
So their minds became uh, more fix- fixated on baser things like hunger, uh, food, trying to stay warm, trying to you know keep your feet wrapped, trying to you know trying to find news, trying to you know trying to just. Uh, thinking about less higher ideals, right, and more just about survival, which is totally understandable. He continues, I always regarded the discussions about food as dangerous. Is it not wrong to provoke the organism with such detailed and effective pictures of delicacies when it has somehow managed to adapt itself to extremely small rations and low calories? Though it may afford momentary psychological relief, it is an illusion which physiologically, surely, must not be without danger. So he's basically saying, like, yeah, you got to be careful with this mind thing, with this, you know, this imagination thing, because it's going to make you feel hungry when you don't have anything else to eat, right? Just negative side to it, maybe. So, um, so you know, Viktor Frankl, as a scientist, um, at least as a psychotherapist, as a psychologist, I imagine, uh, he is observing what's happening. He has its, he has his ability to detach himself a little bit and observe these things, you know, objectively. And so he's watching the regression, the the progression, and the regression of the inmates. So um, he describes this sort of downward spiral here. So. When the last layers of subcutaneous fat had vanished and we looked like skeletons disguised with skin and rags, we could watch our bodies begin to devour themselves. The organism digested its own protein, and the muscles disappeared. Then the body had no powers of resistance left. One after another, the members of the little community in our hut died. Perhaps it can be understood, then, that even the strongest of us was longing for the time when we would have fairly good food again, not for the sake of good food itself, but for the sake of knowing that the subhuman existence which had made us unable to think of anything other than food would at last cease. So the idea of food and good food and lots of it wasn't so much just the fixation itself. It was that when you had food again, it meant that this whole ordeal was over, right? So like food kind of represented freedom, you know? Uh, a higher level of being that they, you know, maybe couldn't remember anymore, right? They, they weren't living that way anymore. So he continues. Undernourishment, besides being the cause of the general preoccupation with food, probably also explains the fact that the sexual urge was generally absent. Apart from the initial effects of shock, this appears to be the only explanation of a phenomenon which a psychologist was bound to observe in those all-male camps. That, as opposed to all other strictly male establishments such as army barracks, there was little sexual perversion. Even in his dreams, the prisoner did not seem to concern himself with sex, although his frustrated emotions and his finer, higher feelings did find definite expression in them. With the majority of the prisoners, the primitive life and the effort of having to concentrate on just saving one's skin led to a total disregard of anything not serving that purpose and explained the prisoner's complete lack of sentiment. Everything that was not connected with the immediate task of keeping oneself and one's closest friends alive lost its value. Everything was sacrificed to this end. A man's character became involved to the point that he was caught in a mental turmoil which threatened all the values he held and threw them into doubt. Under the influence of a world which no longer recognized the value of human life and human dignity, which had robbed man of his will, and had made him an object to be exterminated, 
having planned, however, to make full use of him first to the last ounce of his physical resources. Under this influence, the personal ego finally suffered a loss of values. If the man in the concentration camp did not struggle against this in a last effort to save his self-respect, he lost the feeling of being an individual, a being with a mind, with inner freedom and personal value. He thought of himself then as only part of an enormous mass of people. His existence descended to the level of animal life. So essentially, if you're just going hand to mouth, you're just eating and you're just surviving and you don't know why there is no other purpose to it, then you you have lost a sort of essential spark that we would often consider to be like a human <laughs> human nature, right? To uh, aspire to complex thoughts and, and ambitions and motives and desires and those just all get crushed because all you can focus on is like I said, you know, getting food, water, getting cleaned, uh, you know, like he, I've read in some of these works that, you know, the, you wheel and deal to get shoelaces or, you know, new shoes or a hat, something to, you know, help you with uh, survival rather than like he started out having a manuscript of, uh, you know, what was supposed to be published work. His focuses have shifted, right? So in that struggle to maintain that sense of individuality, he, uh, he describes that there were attempts towards uh, higher uh, practices and activities. In general, there was also a cultural hibernation in the camp. There were two exceptions to this, politics and religion. Politics were talked about everywhere in camp, almost continuously. The discussions were based chiefly on rumors, which were snapped up and passed around avidly. The rumors about the military situation were usually contradictory. They followed one another rapidly and succeeded only in making a contribution to the war of nerves that was waged in the minds of all the prisoners. Many times, hopes for a speedy end to the war, which had been which had been fanned by optimistic rumors, were disappointed. Some men lost all hope, but it was the incorrigible optimists who were the most irritating companions. The religious interest of the prisoners, as far as as far and as soon as it developed, was the most sincere imaginable. The depth and vigor of religious belief often surprised and moved a new arrival. Most impressive in this connection were improvised prayers of services in the corner of a hut or in the darkness of the locked cattle truck in which we were brought back from a distant worksite, tired, hungry, and frozen in our ragged clothing. So it's, you know, something that transcended. It uh, was something that was there through their lives. It was there before they were prisoners. It's a regular practice that they could do. And it invoked a feeling of there being something greater than just human misery, right? So there's, they're kind of latching onto something, um, something to uh, help them feel as though, you know, it, it isn't all as hopeless as it otherwise kind of seems, right? Uh, he continues. In spite of all the enforced physical and mental primitiveness of the life in a concentration camp, it was possible for a spiritual life to deepen. Sensitive people who were used to a rich intellectual life may have suffered much pain. They were often of a delicate constitution. But the damage to the inner selves was less. 
they were able to retreat from their terrible surroundings to a life of inner riches and spiritual freedom. Only in this way can one explain the apparent paradox that some prisoners of a less hardy makeup often seemed to survive camp life better than did those of a robust nature. So your survivability wasn't merely about your physical strength and your, your physical fortitude, but a kind of a mental flexibility, maybe a mental toughness that led to a mental freedom. You know, if your physical self can't be free, uh, then your mind can be, and maybe you, your mind is able to uh, transcend the awfulness, and it was the more intellectually bent who had this kind of imaginative or, uh, you know, uh, introspective power uh, rather than the, maybe just the youngest, the most healthy. So um, here's another little, another little excerpt that demonstrates that. So while they were marching out in the pre-dawn darkness to go to a, a work site and it was cold, one of them, one of the prisoners ex exclaims, if our wives could see us now, I do hope they are better off in their camps and don't know what is happening to us. They brought thoughts of my own wife to mind, and as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew. Each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally I looked at the sky where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds, but my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and, un and encouraging look. Real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun which was beginning to rise. So just the image of the woman that, uh, you know, he, that he was in love with, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, that they had a strong connection with that was, again, from before the time of the, the suffering and everything, and this longing to maybe return to her again one day, right, creates this intense feeling in him that is very much the opposite, right, of all the rest of their surroundings, right? Um, and so it becomes very powerful. He, uh, he continues in this uh, line of thinking. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is, set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment in the contemplation of his beloved. In a position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, an honorable way, in such a position man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfillment. For the first time in my life I was able to understand the meaning of the words, the angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory. In front of me a man stumbled, and those following him fell on top of him. The guard rushed over and used his whip on them all. Thus my thoughts were interrupted for a few minutes. But soon my soul found its way back from the prisoner's existence to another world, and I resumed talk with my loved one. 
I asked her questions, and she answered. She questioned me in return, and I answered. Stop. We had arrived at our work site. So he, you know, is able to kind of summon this uh, imagery and this experience, this uh, you know positive experience of you know his wife, and that having it seems almost like an abstract thing, like it's having even the concept of love, the idea of love, is more than even a sample, even a tiny snippet of love is enough to, you know, to seek something out, right? You have something to live for because you want to have that again. Uh, you, you know that other person loves you, so you're going to struggle to continue on, right? Um, let's, let's get back to it. So uh, after they were getting back to work and getting yelled at and they're trying to dig in the ground and the, and the ground's frozen and everything, <clears throat> my mind still clung to the image of my wife. A thought crossed my mind. I didn't even know if she were still alive. I knew only one thing which I have learned well by now. Love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. It finds its deepest meaning in the spiritual being, his inner self. Whether or not he is actually present, whether or not he is still alive at all, ceases somehow to be of importance. I did not know whether my wife was alive, and I had no means of finding out. But at that moment, it ceased to matter. There was no need for me to know. Nothing could touch the strength of my love, my thoughts, and the image of my beloved. Had I known, then, that my wife was dead, I think that I would still have given myself, undisturbed by that knowledge, to the contemplation of her image and that my mental conversation with her would have been just as vivid and just as satisfying. Set me like a seal upon thy heart. Love is as strong as death. So he's saying that his, the, the love actually transcends their lives, that whether they were met with each other, whether one was alive or not, uh, he could still summon the mental imagery of what that love felt like, right? So this piece of happiness that you can kind of carry within yourself that you can use to kind of combat how awful their <laughs> their situations are <clears throat> so um that yeah that single source of love and comfort he draws upon that and that's you know maybe that's his particular way of getting through it friend uh every other prisoner might have something different but here we go this intensification of inner life helped the prisoner find a refuge from the emptiness, desolation, and spiritual poverty of his existence by letting him escape into the past. When given free reign, his imagination played with past events, often not important ones, but minor happenings and trifling things. His nostalgic memory glorified them, and they assumed a strange character. Their world and their existence seemed very distant, and spirit reached out for them longingly. In my mind, I took bus rides, unlocked the front door of my apartment, answered my telephone, switched on the electric lights. Our thoughts often centered on such details, and these memories could move one to tears. So just the, the small things, right? The little things in life that you take for granted now, just, you know, easy meals and warm you know, blankets and baths and, I don't know, chocolate, I guess. Maybe maybe in there there's, like, sex as a, not as, a, as an urge, but as a comforting thought, right? 
all the great things that we take for granted because we're all a bunch of spoiled, a bunch of spoiled brats. Anyway, as the inner life of the prisoner tended to become more intense, he also experienced the beauty of art and nature as never before. Under their influence, he sometimes even forgot his own fright, frightful circumstances. If someone had seen our faces on the journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg with their summits glowing in the sunset through the little barred window of the prison carriage, he would never have believed that those were the faces of men who had given up all hope of life and liberty. Despite the fact, or maybe because of it, we were carried away by nature's beauty, which we had missed for so long. Despite that factor, or maybe because of it, we were carried away by nature's beauty, which we had missed for so long. So that contrast between their treatment and how you know dark and awful everything is, right, allows for uh, a sort of exp um, contrast, right? That contrast gives you a glimpse of beauty in ways that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have appreciated, right? Another time we were at work in a trench, the dawn was gray around us. Gray was the sky above, gray the snow in the pale light of dawn, gray the rags in which my fellow prisoners were clad, and gray their faces. I was again conversing silently with my wife, or perhaps I was struggling to find the reason for my sufferings, my slow dying. In a last violent protest against the hopelessness of imminent death, I sensed my spirit piercing through the enveloping gloom. I felt it transcend that hopelessness, that hopeless, meaningless world, and from somewhere I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of an ultimate purpose. At that moment, a light was lit in a distant farmhouse, which stood on the horizon as if painted there, in the midst of the miserable gray of a dawning morning in Bavaria. So here again, you know, he's finding refuge in these beautiful thoughts and intentions and everything, and then he he also inspires uh, humor in his fellow inmates and in himself uh, to kind of summon and make new uh, you know new positive experiences. Right? Um, he he goes on to discover that there was any semblance of art in a concentration camp must be surprise enough for an outsider. But he may be even more astonished to hear that one could find a sense of humor there as well. Of course, only the faint trace of one, and then only for a few seconds or minutes. Humor was another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. It is well known that humor, more than anything else in the human makeup, can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. I practically trained a friend of mine who worked next to me on the building site to develop a sense of humor. I suggested to him that we would promise each other to invent at least one amusing story daily about some incident that could happen one day after our liberation. He was a surgeon and had been an assistant on the staff of a large hospital. So I had once tried to get him to smile by describing to him how he would be, able, he would be unable to lose the habits of camp life when he returned to his former work. On the building site, especially when the supervisor made his tour of inspection, the foreman encouraged us to work faster by shouting, Action! Action! I told my friend, 
One day you will be back in the operating room performing a big abdominal operation. Suddenly an orderly will rush in announcing the arrival of the senior surgeon by shouting, Action! Action! Trying to get the thoughts to think, right? To, to think the thoughts about not being in the camp and what the, that there is a future to look forward to, right? So the attempt to develop a sense of humor and to see things in a humorous light is some kind of a trick learned while mastering the art of living. Yet it is possible to practice the art of living even in a concentration camp. Although suffering is omnipresent, to draw an analogy, a man's suffering is similar to the behavior of gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore, the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. Um, so they, they, he describes uh, these sort of scales. This, uh, he goes on to describe these sort of levels, right? That maybe somebody who has more, maybe a capo or a foreman, he becomes sort of jealous of them, right? He describes uh, walking out with a, a, group, a party to go do work, and they see other like other inmates, but that are just like prison inmates. They're not camp inmates, if that makes sense. Um, and he describes feeling envious of the regular criminals, <laughs> like regular regular prison inmates. Uh, he says these uh, these prisoners who surely had regular opportunities to take baths, we thought sadly. They surely had toothbrushes and clothes brushes, mattresses, a separate one for each of them, and monthly mail bringing them news of the whereabouts of their relatives, or at least of whether they were still alive or not. We had lost all that a long time ago. And how we envied those of us who had the opportunity to get into a factory and work in a sheltered room. It was everyone's wish to have such a life-saving piece of luck. So... You know, looking up the scale of suffering and feeling jealous of these, you know, prison inmates because they have something more. And, of course, the prison inmates are probably looking up seeing that they have something more and up and up and up because, uh, you know, everybody's suffering, right? We were grateful for the smallest of mercies. We were glad when there was time to de-louse before going to bed, although in itself this was no pleasure as it meant standing naked in an unheated hut where icicles hung from the ceiling. Real, positive pleasures, even small ones, were very few. I remember drawing up a kind of balance sheet of pleasures one day and finding that in many, many past weeks, I had experienced only two pleasurable moments. So when you're talking about pleasurable moments, you know, he, he tries to find, like he did with his wife, like they did with humor, uh, he tries to find these uh, moments of peace. And uh, I'm going to describe, read this one he describes here, that despite the horror, he's still able to find, find some solace. There were times, of course, when it was possible and even necessary to keep away from the crowd. It is well known that an enforced community life, in which attention is paid to everything one does at all times, may result in an irresistible urge to get away, at least for a short while. The prisoner craved to be alone with himself and his thoughts. He yearned for privacy and for solitude. After my transportation to a so-called rest camp, I had the rare fortune to find solitude for about five minutes at a time. Behind the earthen hut where I worked, and in which were crowded about fifty delirious patients, 
There was a quiet spot in a corner of the double fence of the barbed wire surrounding the camp. A tent had been improvised there with a few poles and branches of trees in order to shelter a half-dozen corpses, the daily death rate in the camp. There was also a shaft leading to the water pipes. I squatted on the wooden lid of this shaft whenever my services were not needed. I just sat and looked out at the green flowering slopes and the distant blue hills of the Bavarian landscape, framed by the meshes of the barbed wire. I dreamed longingly, and my thoughts wandered north and northeast, in the direction of my home, but I could only see clouds. So I think we're, we're about halfway right here, and I'm going to have to leave it at that for this episode. Uh, we're going to leave Victor in, a, uh, in a, a bit of a happy place, right? In the horror of a Nazi concentration camp, he's able to sift through and find the pearls of joy and beauty and, uh, and try to retain a shred of his manhood and his dignity and his individuality, right? So... You're going to have to uh, wait until the next episode, right? And uh, we'll, we'll get into how it becomes maybe worse and maybe better. But until then, I've had to maybe create a little bit of meaning for you. You're going to be sitting there, man, I, gotta, I can't wait for that next episode to come out. Man, see? See what I did? But I only did that because Dr. Frankel was able to do this. So, so thanks for listening to this episode of the Kyle Style Podcast. I'm looking forward to getting the next one up. And hopefully you'll join me for the... Uh, conclusion of my critique excerpt readings from uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, I'm trying to bring you quality content to uh, for you to hear and put the flow back in your ears, right? So uh, head over to redbubble.com store, make a purchase there. That'll help uh, contribute to the podcast. Uh, go over to the GoFundMe page and throw me a couple dollars. At the very least, Follow me on Twitter. It's at KStylePodcast. Uh, send me suggestions. Tell me how much you hate me. Tell me how much you like me. Tell me what you know podcast episodes you'd like to hear. What kind of topics you'd like, and uh, just let me know how you how you think. What do you What do you think? Maybe I'm totally wrong. I know I could be completely wrong, but I need you to tell me that. Okay, I need your help, right, to become better. Okay. And you need my help to become better because you could be wrong too. And see, see how I see how anim- how much animosity there is here. It's so antagonistic. I'm asking you to help contribute to the podcast in any way you can, and I'm going to continue to be do- to be contributing my podcast to you in any way I can. Okay, deal. Okay, deal. All right. See you on the next episode. Bye.